You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It is Wednesday, July the 22nd. I am Edward Harrison here in Washington, D.C. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're shortly going to be joined by Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. But before we go to Jim, let's talk to Nick Correa for the stories of the day. Thanks, Ed. Yesterday, President Trump held a coronavirus briefing for the first time since April to acknowledge how the outbreak has grown in its severity. He said that, quote, it will probably, unfortunately, get worse before it gets better, end quote. He conceded that there were big fires occurring, and he encouraged social distancing and the use of masks when social distancing is not possible. It seems now that all of Capitol Hill is finally embracing the fact that the virus will not be slowing down anytime soon, and that they need to implement policies that demonstrate substantial strength in their response to the pandemic. Earlier this week, Senate Republicans and President Trump were smoothing out some of their differences for a new relief package, which may be their last shot at meaningfully addressing the pandemic and its effect on the economy before the November elections. The beginnings of these proposals and negotiations for the upcoming bill are already fraught with tension between the two parties. This bill, which would represent the Republicans' opening bid, is estimated to be about $1 trillion, when Democrats had vowed to accept no less than $3 trillion in May. However, conflicting interests have also emerged within the Republican Party itself. Some of the issues Republicans are facing in constructing this initial proposal is that President Trump has some ideas that congressional leaders are not aligned with, such as funding for education on the resumption of in-person schooling and the removal of funding for testing and contact tracing. As they work through those conflicts, Republicans likely will include programs such as tax breaks, direct payments, and jobless aid. Majority Leader Senator Mitch McConnell said yesterday that he supports more direct payments to Americans. Yeah, we'll lay out the specifics. I'm going to introduce a bill in the next few days that is a starting place that enjoys fairly significant support among Republican senators, probably not everyone. And uh, at that point, we'll be more specific about how to allocate. But we do envision uh, direct checks again. However, Senator McConnell had previously suggested that these payments should be distributed only to those who make 40000 or less. Republicans have also favored scaling back enhanced benefits from the additional $600 per week. Yet time is of the essence. Americans know that the enhanced benefits will be ending on July 31st. However, what they may not expect is that they will most likely won't be receiving that extra $600 next week. In a statement from the U.S. Department of Labor, it says, quote, the federal pandemic unemployment compensation $600 can be paid for weeks ending no later than the week ending prior to Friday, July 31st, 2020. For all states except New York, that is Saturday, July 25th. New York's end date is Sunday, July 26th, end quote. In other words, that extra support that is helping unemployed households spend will vanish in a matter of days. More than 20 million Americans' income will be cut in half, and maybe even more than that for some. Ernie Tedeschi, a former Treasury Department official and an economist at Evercore ISI Research, had estimated that if the enhanced benefits stopped, U.S. GDP would be 2% smaller at the end of the year, and 1.7 million jobs would be lost. 
Not only is the extra unemployment benefits supporting millions of Americans, they are also supporting other people whose jobs would otherwise be on the line. These enhanced benefits probably have had the most impact in terms of cushioning the economy during this pandemic, and taking them away, reducing them, or not renewing them in time would do more damage than good. And with that, I'll turn it back to Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks for that, Nick. Jim, looking good, Jim. Thanks. Looking good, Lewis. <laughs> I, I think we got that right. Uh, you've been watching The Daily Briefing long enough to know that we get it wrong every time, Ash and I. So I'm sure that you and I, we got it wrong as well. Um, today was uh, was sort of a blah day in terms of the markets. I looked at the close, you know, S&P, NASDAQ, and the Dow all up less than 1%. Not a whole lot of action, but I think there's still a, a, a backstory there that we can talk about uh, a lot of different things in terms of where we are economically in terms of the market. And also, I want to talk to you about silver, and I want to talk to you about the Fed. Uh, you, you, can we start off with the Fed? Yeah. Yeah. So let me let me talk to you about Judy Shelton. That's the first thing that I want to talk to you about, because it's been making a lot of waves. And you and I, we were actually talking about this a little bit before we got on about uh, who the who's been nominated or potentially selected to potentially be nominated. T talk to me about what you know about Judy Shelton and the opposition to her uh, becoming a Fed governor. So first of all, what's happened with uh, Judy is that she was voted out of the Finance Committee in party line vote 1110, and her nomination goes to the full Senate now for consideration, which should probably happen before Labor Day. If she comes out on a party line vote there, she will become the next Federal Reserve governor. Now, there's been a lot of opposition to Judy's uh, nomination. And before I mention the opposition, I should give a little bit of a uh, an FYI. Um, I know Larry Kudlow. I have known Larry Kudlow for many years. I had the fortune that Larry actually invited me to the White House in May of 2019 to interview for that same position as well, too. Larry was thinking about the idea of maybe a financial markets person as one of the Fed governors. Also, with it's been subsequently disclosed, Scott Minard also interviewed for it as well, too. And I also know Judy. Now that I've said all of that, I'm going to be very critical of her critics. She is a heterodox. She has out-of-the-box views. She, you know, has talked about a potential about a gold standard that has become a pejorative for sounding like old, grainy, black and white images of somebody who's from a bygone era. But all it means is more of her moniker of hard money, Judy, that you want to tie the dollar to something as opposed to letting it be a complete fiat currency. She has been criticized for holding views that have been described as being a shifting kind of view that has been more towards the politics of the day. I understand that argument, but I would say this about the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve FOMC. She would be one of 12 voters. She'd be one of seven governors if fully staffed. It seems like the institution and those that defend it are saying that they cannot handle one out-of-the-box thinker at the Fed. 
that if you don't toe the party line, if you don't adhere to what, and I've heard a number of people, Adam Posen has basically said this, the head of the Peterson Institute, will she listen to what the staff of the Federal Reserve will tell her on how to think about things? I think that is an indictment of the Federal Reserve itself, as opposed to Judy Shelton. There's nothing wrong with outside the box thinkers. We've had Wayne Angel, we've had Ed Gramlich, we've had Larry Meyer, who I would consider other heterodox thinkers at the Federal Reserve over the last many years. The institution survived, survived well with it. It was maybe even enhanced by a different viewpoint. The same could be said about Judy as well, too. And I'm amazed by all of the pushback that her um, nomination has been getting. You know, uh, I before I showed you what Carl Smith was saying, he is a, uh, I would call, a free market economist. And he had two arguments. One that you already mentioned, which is the fact that uh, she's somewhat political, uh, supposedly, because she shifted her, her opinions. The second argument, he said, is because she's heterodox. And, and the way that I understood that he was saying, because the Fed is printing so much money right now, because they're going into overdrive, we need someone who's not heterodox. We need someone who can, you know, do it in a way that is is uh, less, uh, you know, heter th that is less out of, out of outside the box because we already have so much outside the box now. What, what's your thinking on that? Well, on the first part about that her views have shifted and that she seems to be political, kind of going whichever way uh, the White House seems to be, whether it's an R or D. Um, yeah, that is a little bit concerning. I'll agree with that, but I don't think it's disqualifying. Leo Brainerd, who is a cons uh, who is a Federal Reserve governor now and has been there for six years, donated to the Hillary Clinton campaign as a Federal Reserve governor and was perceived to be on the short list to be Hillary Clinton's Treasury Secretary. Judy Shelton is no more political than Leo Brainerd. So I don't know why all of a sudden what she's done has become outside the bounds where Leo Brainerd uh, hasn't done it. As far as being that now that the Fed is doing extraordinary things, we need, you know, orthodox view, uh, people that will think. Basically, to me, when you talk about the Federal Reserve, orthodox means the staff will tell you how you're going to vote. Right. And that, that is that is what orthodox is, because they all rely on the staff so much. Um, a little other inside the baseball thing is that the presidents of the regional banks, they have staffs of economists and they have researchers that can help them formulate their views. A governor, you're allowed one assistant. That's mm -hmm. all you're about is one assistant. And so you rely on the staff for anything you want to do. A lot of times your assistant is more of an admin than it is like a full-blown researcher as well too. So the way the Fed is set up is that it is kind of reliant upon the staff. So the staff will feed her information. And if she rejects what the Fed, the staff is telling them, they get very worried where she's going to come up with her views if we don't tell her what her views are. That is an indictment of the uh, institution itself as opposed to the nominee that we have. Well, you know, the Fed leads into a lot of other stuff because obviously a lot of people think the Fed is, what they're doing is uh, roiling markets. It's dictating markets, dominating markets, if you will. And uh, I, I want to talk to you about that in, in regards to the concept that, um, you know, you supposedly were a bear and then you became a bull. Uh, and there was a lot of consternation about this supposed, you know, I'm I, I'm looking bearish and it's a, you know, 
bad things are going to happen. And then suddenly, you know what? Uh, you got to be fully invested. Wh where are you on that? And how's the Fed um, playing a role in, in your thinking? Well, the Fed's playing a big role in that thinking because what I, you're right, around late May, early June, I, before that, I was very worried about what the virus was doing to the economy and how it was hurting the economy. In the early stages of the recovery into April, I said, you know, the money printing will help push the market higher, but it'll eventually double bottom is where my thinking was. But then by about late May, I started to realize the power that the Fed was unleashing on the market was a lot greater than even what I started to think about. And so I came out with this idea, look, you ask me about the economy, it's got issues. And it's got issues around the virus, around the job losses, and the re reopening and the recovery is going to be a lot more difficult than you think. But given all of the stimulus, I still think financial markets can push higher. The problem with bull or bear is it's a religion. And if you are bullish, you have to go all in on the religion. You have to be bullish. You have to be talking, you know, break out in God bless America, talk about new earnings highs, about the economy recovering and everything being seashells and balloons and just wonderful. If you're bearish, then you're, you know, you've got to go full Peter Schiff and you got to talk about the end of humanity as well. You can't straddle this kind of, well, the economy is going to be in trouble, but the market's going to disconnect and push higher, which is my view. You upset both crowds is what you wind up doing. And that seems to what I've wound up doing. And that's what I think is going on is that this stimulus, yeah, I knew it was there and I knew it was going to push the market higher. I just had no idea that it's going to have the immense power to take a 35% decline in the, in the S&P 500 and essentially undo it in four months. Uh, tomorrow will be four months since the March 23rd low. And we're... 150 points away from a new high in the S&P. It's been astounding the size of the rally that we've seen over the last few months. It really has been astounding. And, you know, as you were saying, the Fed is uh, very much responsible for that. And, you know, the bifurcation you're talking about is Wall Street versus Main Street. But, you know, when you think about the internals of the market in terms of market structure, that is, you know, the so-called Robinhood accounts, ETFs, uh, retail investors, how much of a role does that play in terms of why the Fed is having an outsized impact? Yeah, so let's let's put this in the in its buckets here. Um, we have institutional investors and we have retail investors. Institutional investors, in terms of level or amount of assets, dominates retail investors. There's no comparison. A lot of the money is at the institutional level uh, on flows. The amount of flows that goes on, retail seems to be growing at an exponential pace. Now, what's happened with retail investors is they're not a monolith. There's retail. There's several types of retail now. On the one hand, you've got traditional retail. Let's say that those are the people that are members of the American Association of Individual Investors or the AAII. They do a survey of their investors. These are older investors that have been around for decades that invest their own money. 30% of them are bullish on the market, which is not much different than it was in late March. They still maintain a very defensive position. Then you've got the millennials in the Robin Hood types as well. They are growing exponentially and are exponentially bullish. All of the brokerage firms, whether you're talking Schwab, 
Fidelity, or Robinhood are opening new accounts since March in the millions. They are seeing money come into their markets in, in, in levels that was never conceived of before. And that money is coming in and it's and all these people, maybe they're uh, you know former frustrated sports gamblers, but they always say, I'm only going to invest to the level that I could lose, which means that they're uber aggressive. It's imagine going to Vegas and watching somebody who brought some money and won immediately, and now they're playing with the house's money. How reckless they are. Well, that seems to be what's going on with a lot of this money. Even though a traditional AAII account might have half a million dollars in it, and a Robinhood account might have 10,000 just to use a number, that 10,000 will turn over every day or two. That half a million might do three trades a year. That Robinhood account will have a bigger influence on the flow of money in and out of the markets than those other accounts. Citadel says that about 25% of all trading in the markets, they said this to Bloomberg a few weeks ago, is retail investors. On peak days, 20% on, on normal days. Now, the third group, and by the way, you know, it's the marginal investor that, that matters, right? It's the marginal price. That's where the stock is set. That's where the price is set. Not right. based on stock, but on flow. Right. If if Apple makes a new high th today and it made a new high on the last trade of the day, up a dollar on a thousand shares, and we found out that that was some retail or a bunch of retail investors that bought those thousand shares, we don't come back and say, well, that doesn't count. We need to value Apple at some price $4 lower where the last institutional money well, you know, went into the market. It's the last trade, the marginal dollar. And they are a big part of the marginal dollar. A lot of active, a lot of active investors, um, professional investors, really abhor this idea that I'm talking about. They push back on it. They're trivial. They're not important. They're a threat to them is what they are. They would prefer these investors to put their money in their funds right. and pay fees than to invest this money on their own at no commission as well. But the third group I'd like to point out is the fund investors, the, the ETF investors. Now, something interesting is happening there. Since April 1st, the beginning of the second quarter, about 80% of all of the money that's gone into an ETF has gone into a fixed income ETF and specifically three types, corporate mm -hmm. bond ETFs, high yield ETFs, and aggregate bond ETFs, the broad bond ETFs. Those are the three types of ETFs that the Federal Reserve is currently buying right now. <laughs> so what's happened is the money that's going in the ETFs is co-investing with the Fed. Right. I own what the Fed is owning. Equity ETFs are not getting a lot of money right now. That's the domain of the Robinhood and the retail investors. They're the ones that are pushing new money into the market in the retail space as well. So my point here about retail is it's not this monolith called retail. There are several different types of retail. It is I, it is trifurcating, if I could use that word, into three different camps and maybe even more if I wanted to, you know, put a finer pencil on it and uh, cut it down even more. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. 
You know, uh, so before we take a forward-looking stance here, I want to. There's one other uh, topic that I find very interesting. It's one that I didn't cover yesterday. You know, some people uh, were like, you know, wait a minute, why are you talking about Europe when, in fact, gold is going uh, and silver in particular was going through the roof yesterday. I think silver is up, you know, or it was up at some point, almost a hundred percent since the, its bottom in in, in 2020. What's going on with uh, precious metals? Well, first off, for the Gen Ys and the millennials that are watching the crowd, gold and silver are the natural cryptos, if you want to think of them in those terms as well, too. Now, <clears throat> silver is a higher beta play on gold. It has less volume, it, uh, and it is much more volatile as well, too, that at the margin, when gold goes, typically silver goes more. That works both ways. Gold is now pushing 1850 and some of the forward contracts, you know, out in the 21 are over $1,900, which is close to its all-time highs. Silver is having that exaggerated move on the upside. Of course, the warning is when gold corrects, silver will have that exaggerated move on the downside too. It isn't just a one-way street. So it really, when you see silver start to move on a gold breakout like you see now, it to me says people have noticed they are starting to believe money is starting to flow in to the precious metals. Now, what is it about the precious metals that people like? I've argued that, you know, you buy a precious metal, you want to own a precious metal because you want to protect yourself from perceived problems in the financial system. Right. Those problems could be inflation, they could be deflation, they could be financial crisis or something. The problem with, uh, with gold and silver is, they're not really disconnected from the financial system as much as we'd like. Yes, I think that everything is going to hit the fan, so I want to hold GLD. Well, GLD is not going to work for you if you think everything's going to hit the fan. It's a New York Stock Exchange listed uh, 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 company, if you will. Go buy Tesla at that point. If you really think it's going to hit the fan, you want to buy coins and you want to bury them in your backyard. Well, nobody knows how to do that uh, as well. So that's why it's kind of the... There's a problem with the financial system play, but it only goes so far. So what I'm interpreting from this move higher in gold and silver is a bit of a concern about what's been happening in other aspects of the financial markets, whether or not the stock market's getting a little bit too bubbly, or the bank stocks are getting a little bit too, too bubbly uh, as well, too, whether or not the dollar is at risk. Add it all up, throw a few other things in there, and I think that's your bid for the uh, precious metals that we've seen. Interesting, you know, because um, I think there are two two ways that people could look at uh, uh, precious metals. Traditionally, uh, you know, one is financial repression, you know, negative real interest rates. You know, why not hold gold and silver when uh, the Fed is holding interest rates below the rate of inflation? And the second is inflation itself. You know, maybe. Uh, this is a sign that inflation is about to happen in some capacity, and it's expressing itself through uh, precious metals, but also potentially through the U.S. dollar. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I agree. You know that financial repression is another stress point for financial markets that you're holding interest rates at some unnaturally low level. Let's think more Europe than the United States with their negative rates. If you look at the price of gold and you overlay it on a chart of, say, the amount of negative interest rates in the world, there's a very good fit between the two. 
And that makes sense. As you repress interest rates further and further negative, gold becomes more attractive. There used to be, um, you know, the, 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 the knock on gold was it was an instrument that had no yield. Why would I want to own it? Well, in 2020, it is the high yielding instrument that has no yield because everything else is negative. So that has definitely been a help in gold. And you're right about that. Maybe it is signaling that inflation fears are beginning to start to creep into the marketplace because the breakout has only been over the last couple of weeks and that that could build over time if we continue to see these precious metals go higher. So you know, to, to round it out then uh, today, what are your thoughts then on what's your forward looking thinking? Because you already said, yeah, maybe uh, inflation might be one of the things. What about uh, the financial markets and also the, the, uh, the economy? Yeah. So on the financial markets, stimulus is working to push financial markets higher, even though the economy, we could talk about that next is kind of struggling along. I'm with you completely on that uh, initial claims could start to see another move higher as well too, because the we're flattening out the recovery there. So let's separate the two. Does that mean that stimulus will forever and always work to push financial markets higher? No, it ends when you get inflation. And if we're starting to see the beginnings of that inflation fear, it would eventually manifest itself in higher interest rates. Uh, I've argued that there's one thing bigger than the collective of the federal government with all its stimulus checks and with the central bank's money printing. That's the collective of the financial markets. The collective of the financial markets, and especially the bond market, is not of one mind. There's people that are bullish. There's people that are bearish. They like credit. They hate credit. They're left, right, up, down, forward, backwards. There's no there's no unifying theme there. So in place of everybody going eight different directions, the central bank come in and be a dominant player. You get inflation, and you and you get a fear of inflation. Then you get a collective thought: I have to be away from a fixed income security. If you get inflation, and you get massive selling. Now, I know we talked earlier, you're going to say, yes, but then they'll do yield curve control in an unlimited fashion and force interest rates to stay down. Financial the repression. The interest rate coin is the dollar. And then you would see foreigners leave the dollar. And the dollar would then massively decline as well. Now, let me emphasize, that's if you get that inflation fear. As of today, July 22nd, we don't have that. We have interest rates trending sideways in one of the tightest ranges we have ever seen for the 10-year yield. And as long as it continues, you know, I, I like to say, wake up every day and I look at the 10-year yield and it's 62 basis points, plus or minus two or three basis points. Right. It's the market saying, okay, keep printing. Okay, keep borrowing. You get another day of doing it. You get another day of doing it. Well, one day I'll wake up maybe and it'll be 75 basis points. Then it'll be 85. Then it'll be 95. And then there will be the market saying, you're done with the money printing, because now we're telling you that it's bad. And that hasn't happened yet. But I fear that as we move forward, inflation may return. And if it does, that day could be coming soon. Very interesting stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, my, my own personal view is that... Uh, we're more likely to see some negativity on the real real economy side. Uh, 
forward that's going to force the market in one direction than, say, inflation. That is, is, is that uh, we have the fiscal cliff coming and we also have the fact that uh, you know the 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 virus wave is actually creating uh, more fear. Uh, w- w- you know, in terms of the real economy going forward and the impact of the market, just as a last sort of thought for today, I noticed that you talked about China and how China, even though they have zero cases, or at least they say they have zero cases, zero deaths, that is, uh, internally, Really, uh, consumers aren't convinced that they need to go out and spend uh, like, uh, you know, it's going out of style. Consumers have changed their behavior in China. Yes, that's right. So here, you know, President Trump gave a press conference yesterday, and you hear this from a lot of professional investors, that this magic bullet of a vaccine is out there. And someday we're going to get this vaccine and we're all going to get a shot, and then this whole thing goes away, and we're all going to go back to January 2020. Well, China doesn't have a vaccine. But what China does have, as you point out, is zero cases. The last four days, John Hopkins is saying there has been not one coronavirus case in, in China. Over the last two months, the average number of cases in a country, 1.4 billion, is 20 people a day. The number of deaths that they've had over the last two months, I think, is around 10, 10. That's it. So they are effectively operating as if they had a vaccine because it's been by at least the outward numbers and the outward press reports we get out of China, it's disappeared. Now, maybe it hasn't, but no one in China with their Internet restrictions and stuff knows that they only know what the government tells them. Yet, when you look at their retail sales numbers, their restaurant bookings numbers, their mobility numbers, uh, and even their mass transit numbers out of Shanghai and Beijing, they have only recovered two-thirds of the losses that they took during the pandemic. It's gone. It's gone out of China. It's gone away. Why aren't they all the way back? Now, they are in industrial production and stuff because the government has mandated that they go back to work. But when it comes to the free will of do I want to travel this weekend? Do I want to take my family to a restaurant? Do I want to get on the Shanghai mass transit system and go somewhere? They're electing not to. And the reason I think they're electing not to is the psyche has been damaged by the virus. And even zero cases, it's still hard to undo it. If we get a vaccine in the US, I fear the same thing would happen here. We will get a marginal improvement in the economy but, you, you know, this idea that, oh, if we could just get this vaccine out there and get everybody, get roll up your sleeve, get a shot. And then we could, you know, as Larry Kudlow likes to say, it'll be January 2020, pre-virus all over again. That ship sailed. We'll go back to something else. But we're not going back to January of 2020. China's psyche, I mean, some, whatever authoritarian government they have, they cannot... Uh, legislate what people do on their free time. And on their free time, they seem to want to be less mobile, less willing to go out, and less willing to spend money, even though they've got a guaranteed job and have been told that that virus has gone away. And I feel like if we get a vaccine here, we might see some version of that as well in the West. We're going to have to leave it there, Jim. It has been a pleasure talking to you. And I saw your, your dog rustling in the background, and I see, I, I see your cat over on the other side. So uh, uh, you're a cat and dog lover at the yes. same time. Cat or dog, my answer is yes. <laughs> Great to talk to you, Jim. Thank you. 
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.